Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton, and today we're talking about hamburgers in a hot world. Environmentalists have long had a beef with cows, portraying cattle as ecological villains, tearing up landscapes, and releasing potent greenhouse gases that drive severe weather. Now some advocates are saying cows can actually help heal the climate and reduce severe weather. Burning fossil fuels has pumped massive amounts of carbon dioxide and other pollutants into the atmosphere and oceans, fundamentally changing the biochemistry of the planet. Soils, on the other hand, are depleted, and stashing carbon in the ground could be a winning strategy. Over the next hour, we'll discuss whether cattle have gotten a bad rap and if cow patties could help save humanity. We will also talk about free-range beef, industrial agriculture, what consumers should know about their meat. Along the way, we'll include questions from our live audience at the Commonwealth Club here in San Francisco. We're joined by three guests. Diana Donlin is director of the Cool Foods Campaign at the Center for Food Safety. And Nicolette Hahn-Nyman is a cattle rancher and author of Defending Beef and also The Righteous Pork Chop. Wendy Silver is a professor of ecology at UC Berkeley who studies rangelands. Please welcome them to Climate One. Let's begin. I want to ask you briefly about your sort of your food story, what you ate growing up and what you've eaten now and how your diet has evolved. Uh, Diana Donlin, let's begin with you growing up. Thanks, Greg. Um, Well, I grew up here in San Francisco, and um, my mother fed me a very actually nutritious diet. Um, We didn't eat a whole lot of meat. Uh, We used to get things delivered and kind of eat in season. And being here in California, we had always a variety of food. But I went off to college and took a course in human ecology where I learned that eating meat was bad for the planet. So I gave it up at age 19 and uh, didn't eat it again for quite some time. I won't say exactly how long, Um, but two decades. I'll I'll come clean. Um, And then I had in between... That time I had two children back to back and got really exhausted after the second one was born. And I went to a nutritionist at um, my local market, which is uh, Good Earth in Fairfax, which just everything's organic, everything is really clean and seasonal and local and so forth. And they said, um, 
you know, you really are depleted and need to eat red meat. And I was shocked. I really was shocked. And so um, I started eating it a little tiny bit, and I still only eat it on occasion. But um, I do find that I have better health, and um, I just always know who raised the meat and where it came from um, and seek out pasture-raised. So that's my meat story. Nicolette Nyman, how about you? Well, it's interesting. I didn't, I've known Diana for a while, but I didn't know we had that parallel in our biographies because I also um, I grew up in Michigan my mother was from Germany and um, we had a lot of uh, sort of meat and potatoes actually potatoes almost all the time (laughs) and my father was German Irish so that was fine with him Um, but I went um, to college and majored in biology and was already really active in environmental causes when I started college And I also was sort of continually exposed to this notion that if you were a good environmental citizen, you did not eat meat, especially beef, most of all. (laughs) And so I remember very deliberately choosing to stop eating beef first because of its what I believed were its ecological impacts and especially the connection that I believe that it had to the clearing of the Amazon. That was... I won't say the exact number of years either, but it was a couple of decades ago. Um, I've continued to be a vegetarian, but interestingly, um, I'm now involved in raising cattle myself, and I have two young sons to whom I do feed meat. Interesting. Okay, we'll get more into that later. Wendy, Sylvia, your, your story. Well, so I grew up in Southern California in a family of big meat eaters, um, and when I was 13, I started to have problems with my stomach, and... Um, my pediatrician said, you know, to my mom, just, you know, it seems like that I was having problems after eating pork chops and steaks and some of the heavier food that my mom, my mom was German and was a great cook, but there was a a lot of meat and a lot of kind of good, dense, good German meals. And so he said, why don't you just cut back or maybe cut the meat out of the diet and see if that helped? And it it helped a lot. So from the age of 13, I stopped eating mostly red meat. Um, and then slowly worked chicken and turkey out of my diet because I didn't really like it. Um, I still do seafood occasionally um, and other protein sources. But as an adult now, I've gotten much more interested in trying to figure out what the carbon footprint is of different protein sources. And that's informed my choices as well. So my family still eats meat, <coughs> and I still cook meat occasionally, although we don't eat it very often. Um, and we try to make good decisions uh, from a climate perspective and an environmental perspective. Picking up on that, uh, the world, uh, the Federal Food and Agriculture Organization did a a landmark study some years ago called uh, Livestock Lung Shadow that had a big impact on the way that the climate impact of of animal protein is viewed. Wendy Silver, what's your assessment of that report? It's been quite controversial. It's been amended, and we'll get the others in on this, but how did that kind of change the way people view animal protein for human consumption? You know, I think that 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 was a big uh, wake-up call to a lot of people. Um, You know, we've known for a long time that agriculture in general has the potential to emit a lot of greenhouse gases. Um, What we don't hear about all the time is the fact that agriculture also has a a chance to be part of the solution. Um, And my biggest gripe with Livestock's Long Shadow was it really was a very one-sided treatment. Um, It really focused on, you know, what are the potential emissions, what's the bad management that's going on. Uh, It it gave very little um, space and and consideration to uh, good management practices, um, how widespread those are, uh, what the potential sustainable 
uh, sustainability questions are with regard to management. So I'm, I'm somewhat critical. I think that there's more data coming out. That's, um, the, I think the, the future iterations of that report are going to be uh, probably much more accurate and, and much better. Um, it, I also think that there's data coming out showing that there are higher emissions in some sectors than we thought previously as well. So, so it wasn't based on a lot of data, but there's more data that becoming available, which will, will make it a more useful report for policy. Nicolette Nyman, you're also critical of that report. Anything other than, than what Wendy just said? Well, I largely agree with what Wendy just said. Um, I think there's a lot in it that's good and correct and was important um, because it certainly highlighted an issue that hadn't gotten that much attention, which is sort of what are the, um, the climate impacts of food production and agriculture um, but specifically meat production in, in that report. But there were quite a few things that I found troubling, and I talk about the report in a lot of detail in my book, Defending Beef, actually. And, for example, um, one of the things that the report did was it treated um, very specific problematic ecological behaviors to the entire sector. So. Um, specifically, deforestation was an enormous portion of the emissions that were included in the calculations. And while, in fact, deforestation is a, a really important and urgent issue, um, if you almost all of the emissions that the report was talking about that were added into the meat sector are from very specific geographies in the world. So Indonesia, Brazil, Sudan, there are certain parts of the world that are really hot spots um, for deforestation. Those were attributed to the entire meat sector, and it's really um, inappropriate, especially when people are talking about the American cattle sector and they refer to those figures, because there's absolutely no connection at all. In fact, in the United States, the, n- the number of forested acres has been steadily increasing for decades. So it has no connection to what uh, ranchers in the United States are doing or the beef that Americans are eating. So that's a lot of what I find problematic about that report. It was broad brush. Uh, Though still, uh, Dr. Rajendra Pachari, who's an Indian chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, UN Group of Climate Scientists, says one thing that people can do is reduce their meat consumption. Diane Donlin, is that the right thing? Well, at Center for Food Safety, where I work, we draw a distinction between confinement animal um, agriculture or industrial animal agriculture, otherwise known as CAFOs, and pasture raising. um, So factory farms. Factory farms versus animals that are raised outside on grass. And there really is a world of difference between the two. I mean, in the confinement model, that's when you get the heavy dosage of antibiotics that leads to antibiotic resistance, um, to antibiotic residue in the meat, um, to the manure lagoons, to the loss of biodiversity, to the groundwater contamination, to a whole suite of issues that are not um, associated with the correct pasture management. So it's really, for us, a question of management. But the average American today, if they go out and buy beef or hamburger, it's going to be factory meat, right? So are you saying that if you can get grass-fed meat, that's okay, but stay away from the factory stuff? Um, Absolutely stay away from the factory stuff to the extent that you can. Um, In fact, just, you know, draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going to do it because um, that's the system that needs changing. Um, 97% of the meat comes from that system in this country. Only 3% is the grass-fed. So there's a tremendous opportunity to shift away from this terrible model towards a a model that can be, um, again, when management practices are uh, well done, regenerative. 
Okay. Wendy Silver, and then we'll get Nicolette. Yeah, I just want to make a comment on that, and that while in principle I completely agree, the, one of the problems is, is that we don't have enough grassland area or rangeland area to support the demand. Even a, a Meatless Monday demand, there's not enough grassland area to support um, that much cattle production in the U.S. And so my concern is, well, what's going to happen if we push people away from more confined animal feeding operations, not that I necessarily support that from a climate perspective, but that's going to lead to this more deforestation as we import more beef from places like the Amazon or in in Indonesia or Africa, where people are deforesting to grow meat for an export market. So I think that we've got to look at it both ways. I think that if, if we can do a better job of managing as much cattle as we can on the rangelands we have available and make it sustainable, we also need to look at the other side and can we use, uh, I don't want to, I, I, I hesitate to say what, what people often consider bad words like confined animal operations, but other uh, management approaches that don't rely so heavily on uh, rangeland systems to be able and, and do a better job of managing those environments as well. I just don't think that we're going to be able to make it on grass alone. Because there's not enough grass. Nicolette Nyman? I wasn't going to talk on that, but let me first respond to that point. I think that's a matter definitely for debate. The Savory Institute, which is based in Colorado and does work around the United States and all over the world on sustainable grazing, has specifically looked at quantifying that issue. And they um, they tried to assess if you took all of the cattle out of the feedlots, if you returned them to grass, if you took all of the areas that are currently raising grain for those animals and returned them to grass, could you produce all of the meat for current demands? And they found that actually there's a 30% surplus in the United States in terms of the total amount of land that would be required to do that. So I think that point is definitely up for debate. Um, The second uh, issue is going back to sort of the point about what the right thing is for a consumer to do. And I think um, boycotting an industry does not change it. So if we want to build sustainable food systems, we have to buy the kind of food that we think is actually creating regenerative landscapes and soils. And so if you simply stop eating meat, I mean, I'm a vegetarian myself, so I'm not, you know, I, I don't tell people go out and eat meat or go buy more of it. But I think for people who are omnivorous, I don't think simply stopping to eat meat is necessarily the most constructive step. But stopping eating factory meat and eating the the grass-fed stuff, doesn't that send a signal that the grass-fed farmer, that the boutique farmers uh, pay a higher premium, that that eventually more people buying that product sends a market signal and there's more growth there? Well, what's happened in the organic sector, for example, is it is the fastest-growing sector of the food industry. It has been for a long time. And so you've seen shifting. You've seen transitions towards organic from conventional. And I think that's exactly what will begin to happen in the meat industry. I mean, it is already happening because the grass-fed beef sector is the fastest-growing sector in the beef industry. In fact, overall consumption of beef has been declining in the United States for several decades. But there's been a rise in grass-fed beef consumption. So anybody who's looking at the industry, and in fact, I read a lot of the trade journals on a regular basis, and you can see this talked about all the time, um, there's a recognition that we need to move in that direction among the conventional beef industry. This idea of conversion of a corn farmer suddenly uh, not raising corn anymore and, and, and having grass and, and cows on that land, could that corn farmer make as much money? Uh, with cow pastures as they could with corn? Is that even an economically viable option? I mean, I haven't seen anyone specifically calculate that out, but when you translate 
If you considered all of the inputs that are required for any kind of crop production, especially conventional crop production, so you'd have to have, you know, the seeds and the, obviously, the plowing and the planting, the labor, the fossil fuels, all of the agricultural chemicals that are added, um, and you compare that to simply allowing the land to be undisturbed except for the presence of the animals grazing on it, um, the inputs are quite different. You know, the, the math is quite different. So I think uh, you couldn't just take a, a piece of land and take the corn off of it and put cattle on it and earn more money. It wouldn't work like that. But for a farmer to transition the total operation of what they're doing from crop production to grazing animals, yes, I think that that could be economically viable. Diane Dunlin? Well, one thing with our current model is that there's so many subsidies. So if you're a corn farmer, you're getting subsidized, you're getting insurance. In fact, there's a disincentive to um, conserve the land base. You know, the farmers are told to plow from here to there, and we've lost, um, we only have 3% of our native prairie left. And those were systems that were in perennial grains that were deep-rooted, and what that deep root mass does is hold the soil carbon way down there. When you have this annual production, you have very shallow roots, and you have the carbon going right back into the atmosphere. So, um, you know, we need that. We need to conserve that last three percent of prairie that we have left, um, and stop propping up a system that we're growing all this corn not to feed people, but to feed cows and cars. Um, so, biofuels. Wendy Silver, you're an expert on, on rangelands, grasslands. Tell us what percentage of the world's lands are these grasslands, and why are they important? Why should we care about grasslands? So rangelands or grasslands cover, uh, at a global scale, about 30% of the, the land surface. It's the dominant cover type and the dominant land use type globally. And in California, it's 40 to 50% of the land area. And in fact, we're the biggest dairy-producing state in the country. People don't, don't realize that. I mean, we talk, we've been talking about beef cattle, but dairy is, is in California is a, is a much more important um, commodity, and as well as the fact that it's growing uh, globally. So, so uh, countries like China and India, which traditionally had much smaller uh, dairy industries, a recent paper by Dr. Justine Owen in my lab showed that, that uh, these sectors growing can have a you know, very large impact on um, greenhouse gas dynamics. Um, and, and the potential to potentially mitigate greenhouse gas dynamics by using a key resource, which nobody wants to call a resource, but it's cattle manure. It's the, the poop that we don't really like to think about. But the bottom line is it's a huge emission source and also a huge potential offset um, if we can convert that to, to things like, like um, fertilizer, organic, organic Nicolette fertilizer. Nyman, you write in your book that when cows poop, you celebrate. I remember when I was a parent, you know, my... <laughs> Baby had you know would have a little be a cause for celebration, but I'd never thought about a cow poop as a cause for celebration. <laughs> yeah. Well, in my first book, Righteous Pork Chop, I, I kind of go through this whole um, comparison between traditional farming, where manure was an incredibly important asset, because when you're thinking about um, food production from an ecosystem standpoint, you really have to think about all of uh, the nutrients and how they're utilized by all of the living entities, the plants and the animals, and then how they're returned or not returned back to the soils to be either regenerative or to be depleted. And when you have traditional farming systems, there's a lot more of that versus today, especially the animal sector in the United States and, and much of the world, um, you have a complete segmentation. You have a separation where the feed is grown and then it's transported to the animals. And then there's so much manure. There's so much, I mean, this is a little bit different when you're talking about cattle for beef, but in much of the animal 
food industry, especially dairy, pigs, and chickens and turkeys, you, you have so much uh, concentration of the animals, and then you have to transport the manure um, away from the place where the animals are. And so you just have this um, complete separation of the resources, the natural resources, and the land and the animals. It's not, it's not a connected and regenerative system. So um, what's great about cattle on pasture, whether they're part of a dairy system or a beef system, is that you have that whole cycle taking place. You have um, the capture of the solar energy in the vegetation that's coming up out of the ground, and then the animals are using that. They're using, in most cases, naturally occurring forages, which are things that humans and most other animals cannot use for nutrition. They're converting it miraculously, really, to meat and milk, and then humans are using that food. And as those animals are growing and living on that space, they're not only returning the manure, but they're also returning their urine. And I I was reading some research recently from Australia where they were quantifying when you have um, animals, cattle on grasslands, they get between typically 70 to 90 percent of their water comes from the growing vegetation. I mean, it depends on the season and on the lands that you're on. But um, so you're actually utilizing the resources in that ecosystem in a much more sensible way than animals that are being separated from the land. So, yes, manure on a pasture-based farm is, is a cause for celebration. Nicolette Hahn Nyman is author of Defending Beef. We're talking about cows and cattle at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Wendy Silver, uh, compost can come into the picture here, and how can manure and compost be combined in a way that can really uh, change landscapes and, and become a resource and help the climate situation? Yeah, that's a really good question, because one of the problems from what Nicolette was talking about, about separating the, the cows, you know, taking them off the, the rangeland as a kind of a, a regular part of their their day and their lifestyle. And, and actually, I have to say that a lot of um, cows, both in the dairy and the beef industry, s- spend part of their life cycle on grass. But they're also confined during part of their life cycle. And, and what the, the big biggest greenhouse gas footprint or climate footprint from um, these industries is from that manure that's piling up, especially in the dairy industry. Um, if you take that material and you just spread it back out on the rangelands, which is what a lot of ranchers do in, in this region and, and in the western U.S., you have a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, particularly nitrous oxide, which is a super potent greenhouse gas. So one molecule of nitrous oxide is like 300 molecules of CO2. So it's way, way more potent. So, so if you just spread out that material out on rangelands, you pretty quickly offset any benefit that you would get by adding that material back on, growing more grass, pulling more CO2 out of the atmosphere. But if you take that material and you mix it with agricultural waste or urban green waste and you compost it, um, you dramatically lower the, the rate at which it, it emits greenhouse gases. It, it slows everything down. It slows down the rate at which it breaks down. It gives it more chance to work its way into the soil. It sticks around for a longer period of time. Our research is showing now that um, we've seen from a one-time application of compost, just a dusting on rangelands, we've seen an increase in plant growth for six years. It's continuing to go. We see an increase in the soil carbon storage, not just from the stuff we added in that compost, but also from the plants that are growing. And our models, our computer models, suggest that this is probably going to go on for about 30 years, and at about 100 years we'll break even. And then we, you know, then, then we're back to where we started again. So this is a potential mechanism to really take carbon that would have 
blown up into the atmosphere or nitrous oxide, these potent gases, and figure out a way to stick it in the soil and store it for a longer period of time. And is this happening anywhere in, in real life, or are these a couple uh, test plots uh, in mm-hmm. Marin? Or, I mean, are ranchers doing this? Yes, actually, um, they are. Um, it, definitely, there, there are some test plots, and, and, and one of, we can get back to this, but I have a, a bit of a gripe with the Savory Institute and their approach, one of the things that we felt that was really important and needed to be inserted into this discussion was very rigorous science. And so we have replicated, we've done multi-year studies on multiple sites. Uh, We've used both the UC sites and private ranches uh, where we've been able to control the environment and really do these experiments well. Um, We got the idea, though, from the ranchers. So we started off with some early meetings where we got the ranchers together and we said, well, we're really interested in seeing what the greenhouse gas emissions are from your operations and whether or not there's any potential to lower those emissions. See if you maybe could could participate in carbon markets or greenhouse gas offset programs. People were really enthusiastic. And one of the things that came up is they said, well, you know, we've been taking all of these wastes that we've been paying to get shipped off of our land and composting it with whatever we can get, almond hulls, uh, one rancher was using almond hulls, using other agricultural waste products they get for free or get for cheap, mixing it in, and then just having these compost rows on their, their ranches. And they said, you know, what's the, what's the cost or benefit of this? And when I first started, I said, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to see all kinds of good uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And to be honest, as a scientist, it's a little easier to publish the world's going to hell instead of the world is getting better. <laughs> and so, you know, we're thinking, well, this will be really interesting to see. You know, I'm predicting that we're going to see lots of greenhouse gas emissions. And much to our surprise, we actually saw low, low greenhouse gas emissions, much lower than we predicted. And the amount of carbon gain in the ecosystem, way more than offset the amount of carbon lost. Diane Donlin, how could this be part of a climate solution? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question because um, the Food and Animal Organization, um, the FAO, has declared 2015 the year of the soils. And so we all know, just you know, quickly to review, that our atmospheres are overwhelmed because um, there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere. Our oceans are acidifying because there's too much CO2 in our oceans, but our soils are actually starving for carbon. Um, Ratan Lal, who's one of the preeminent soil scientists in the world, Um, who's at Ohio State University, his estimate is that um, 50 to 70 percent of the world's agricultural lands, the the carbon is severely depleted on them. And so we have this world of opportunity to rebuild uh, carbon around the world by using all these different methods, including composting, um, but just, you know, using common sense, too. I mean, there's this law of return. We, We come from the earth, and we go back to the earth, and when we take all our our waste and we put it in a landfill instead of putting it back in the, into the ground, um, it comes back to haunt us as methane. So um, by rebuilding soils around the world, it's low cost, it's low risk, it doesn't involve geoengineering, it can be done universally, it can be done at scale. Um, so it's a really exciting thing to bring to this climate conversation in, uh, in addition to focusing on emission reduction. Wendy Silver, if California were to not use uh, industrial fertilizer on its crops and use cow manure and compost, could that happen? What would be the impact? Oh, the impact would be huge. So we've done some preliminary calculations, and it suggests that these calculations suggest that that we could save somewhere between one and eight teragrams of CO2 equivalent uh, per year. What's a, what's a teragram, right? That would be enough to offset all of the livestock industry. 
in any given year. So just by switching from an inorganic fertilizer, the kind of fertilizer that you buy mostly in a bag that's made with lots of fossil fuels and um, high, you know, high energy costs. This is just not, not even counting the energy cost for the, making the fertilizer, but just the emissions from, from adding that fertilizer, that inorganic fertilizer onto soils. If you were to take the organic stuff, the compost and manure, and add that, especially the compost and manure, and add that on, you would completely offset the, the livestock sector in the state. Nicolette and I, I mean, if composting is such a, has such great potential, why aren't we doing more of it? What are the obstacles? Is it that it takes investment by municipalities? Even Marin that doesn't collect a lot of, uh, that liberal place that uh, doesn't collect a lot of uh, curbside composting, et cetera. So what are the obstacles to getting more composting if it's such a big potential as we've just heard? Well, I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer that, but I would say the entire food system and agricultural system, the way it is today, there's so much entrenchment in the status quo. There's so much. Um, there are so many barriers to changing it because there's so much invested in it. I mean, the entire system is uh, heavily dependent on and connected with the fossil fuel industry, with the chemical industry, with the pharmaceutical industry, and none of those entities want it to radically change because that means. I, I actually had the opportunity to speak with the president of Shell Oil a couple of years ago, and I said to him. I said, I'm going to say something to you that you're going to think is absolutely ridiculous, but I'm going to say it anyways. I'm going to say to you, what if you guys stepped out and said, we know that the food system is overly dependent on oil and fossil fuels, and so we, as a fossil fuel company, don't think that's a good use of fossil fuels, and we want to support the transition of the food system away from fossil fuels. He said... That's an interesting thought. I'll think about it. <laughs> he did not commit to that strategy. But um, there's an enormous connection right now between major um, multinational industries and our current food system. So I think all of these types of transitions, while incredibly sensible and appealing when you look at just like what the benefits are, uh, there are, there are massive obstacles towards any kind of um, big shift. But at the same time, lots of small um, movements in that direction, I think, are, are beginning to happen. And I think and, there's reason for optimism. And here's one corporate one that, that was in the news recently. General Motors uh, is paying a grassland farmer to not mow down some grass, and they say that's going to save 40,000 tons of CO2. So here's a car company paying someone to keep the grass in place because it's going to keep the carbon there, and that means they can keep on selling their cars. Wendy Silver, you know, does, what does that say about the potential for markets and for monetization of increasing the economic value of grassland? Well, you know, our research contributed to a um, protocol that was recently passed by the American Carbon Registry, which now allows people to use composting and applications to rangelands as a way of offsetting their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, So so it's already out there. Um, And and I agree there are some barriers, but I guess maybe because we live here in the Bay Area and we're fortunate that we have a lot of progressive thinkers and a lot of progressive municipalities, that there's, you know, it's already happening. Um, You know, Berkeley composts. uh, The city of San Francisco has been in a lot, you know, a lot of conversations that we've been having about what to do with their, their excess waste and how, that they, how can they participate in this and how can they offset some of their greenhouse gas emissions by contributing to practices that we've known for a long time work well. These are good common sense practices. They're not magic. Um, they're, 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 uh, they're taking what, what most people see as a problem, waste uh, management, and turning it into a solution, helping to mitigate climate change. 
So I actually, I'm a little bit more optimistic. I think that there are, are not that many barriers. It's um, already moving um, in that direction. I think California is going to be a real leader in this area. Diane Donlin, tell us about Russ Lester. Who's that? Tell us his oh, story. he is an organic uh, farmer up in Dixon, and he has a walnut orchard. And I had the pleasure of conversing with him last summer, and he was telling me that uh, he's been composting on his land and his orchard for years and built up the soil organic <coughs> matter, and as a result has weathered the drought um, better because um, soil is a sponge, and when it's living and healthy, it can hold a lot of a lot of water. In fact, um, the NRCS, the uh, Natural Resources Conservation Department of the United States, tells us that if there's 1% um, organic matter in the soil, in the top six, six inches of the um, soil profile, it can hold 27,000 gallons of water. So um, that's a lot of water when you're looking at a terrible epic drought that seems to be prolonged. And uh, Russ, you know, he, he's weathering the drought very well, but he has looked across and see that his neighbor doesn't use the same practices that he does. And so, um, you know, the water is actually percolating down on Russ's side of the road and recharging the aquifer, but not so on his neighbors where when there is a, a rain event, um, the topsoil tends to wash away and the, the water's what they call ineffective because it doesn't recharge, it just goes away as does the soil. Donna Donlin is director of the Cool Foods Program at the Center for Food Safety. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Alan Savory is a controversial figure in uh, grasslands areas. He talks about erosion, desertification. Uh, Diana Donlin, his TED Talk has been viewed millions of times. What do you think of Alan Savory? Well, I think he's a lovely gentleman. I have met him, and um, he's a wildlife biologist who grew up in Zimbabwe. And I think that he's polarizing because he has a really unusual approach. Um, but I have not only met Alan, but I've met a young woman who works with him named Precious Fury. And Precious is a woman that grew up um, hungry in Zimbabwe. She was orphaned at a very young age and um, had the opportunity to work with the holistic management center that they have there in Zimbabwe. And the, the figures are pretty astounding. The country of Zimbabwe, only 1% of the land is arable. With um, the, the rainfall is um, sufficient in this 1% for farmers to farm. Um, 9% with irrigation, but 90% of the country is desertified. And so Precious um, works with um, the communities where she lives to implement this rotational grazing, and they've had significant results in terms of the grassland restoration, biodiversity restoration, and water holding capacity. So um, as much as I admire Alan, I really admire Precious because she um, is living it and, and spreading this um, effective tool. She sees livestock, proper livestock management as a tool to help people be self-sufficient. Nicolette Nyman, Alan Savory, is he uh, onto something? Well, I think um, he's an iconoclast, and that's why he's polarizing, because he's, um, he doesn't like or believe in feedlots or the industrialized um, way of raising cattle, so um, the cattle industry doesn't like him. Ranchers <laughs> generally are skeptical of him. Um, he criticizes a lot of things um, that are being taught in sort of traditional rangeland and ecological um, classes and universities, and including his whole own education that he had and the way he started out when he started his career. 
And, um, and environmentalists and vegans don't like him because he thinks that cattle are part of the solution, and most of them tend to think that they're part of the problem. So um, it's very um, obvious why he's controversial. The question is, is he saying something that makes a lot of sense? And I believe that he is. And, and a lot of um, what he's talking about in his speeches and in the TED Talk and in his writings and, and uh, among the people that he works with all around the world is that we had enormous herds of grazing animals, large megafauna that covered much of the globe for much of the history of the, well, since life began at least. I mean, when you're talking about geological time, all animals are relatively recent on the, on the planet. But he argues that the disappearance of those large animals, the, not just the grazing animals, but also the predators, which were also having a lot of impact on the, on the globe, and they were also um, having a lot of impact on the herbivores by keeping them densely congregated and keeping them in motion, and that essentially those animals are almost gone today on the globe, and that without those animals, we can't have properly functioning ecosystems. And so he believes that when you compare all of the possible solutions, I've never heard him specifically talk about rewilding, but that would be one of the things that people talk about as a way to sort of um, reintroduce the predators and the grazing animals that were once there. Um, when you look at all, the, all of the possible solutions in terms of their feasibility, he argues that domesticated cattle are the single best uh, way to mimic those disappeared wild animals. And I think that's a very um, credible argument. It just makes a lot of sense. Wendy Silver, is Alan Savory credible? From a scientific perspective, I, I have, and, and my co- I and my colleagues, even, even those of us who aren't from traditional rangeland ecology programs, I'm a biogeochemist. I'm not a traditional uh, rangeland scientist, nor was I trained in a traditional program. But I look at, at what um, he's done from two perspectives. One is I think he's uh, raised a lot of awareness, which has been a very positive thing. I think that uh, people looking at the land and trying to understand how can we better manage land for um, feeding people, which is, I think, absolutely critical, and also for helping to slow climate change is also very important. My primary concern comes from prescriptive management approaches that he's arguing for that have no basis, unfortunately, in the scientific literature. Um, We have looked and looked. Uh, We have talked to his group and said, show us the data. We want to see the data. Um, You know, we're we're supportive in that we want to look at the data with you together and, and think critically about this. And it's just not there. Some of the practices um, that he um, pushes are common sense. Um, if you take areas that are heavily overgrazed, uh, especially continuously grazed by large number of, numbers of animals, you're going to degrade those ecosystems. If you cut back the grazing intensity in, in time and potentially in space, those systems are going to recover to some degree. And he shows these beautiful pictures of desertified and green, and he says the only way you're going to get there is through this approach. And and the scientific community says, well, that's not really true. There's multiple different approaches you can use to get to that that end product. And and actually, taking high-intensity numbers, you know, large, it's called high-intensity short-duration grazing, is not likely to work in many parts of the world. And in fact, in many parts of the world, could have a detrimental effect that we might not see for many years down the road. So you may get a short-term benefit, but long-term, you could end up not only degrading your land, but potentially worse off than when when you started. 
the primary argument that I have um, with what he's been saying is he makes carbon claims with no carbon data. There's no data to support that there's an increase in carbon storage in these ecosystems, especially in these soils, with these practices. And my concern is, is I don't want people to go shifting their land management, especially if their management is, is, is good management, if what's, what they're doing now is working, to something that may not work without any good information to support it. So that was a pretty clear, not credible, no, no science <laughs> backing them up. Uh, I want to do a brief uh, pop quiz here. We do this occasionally here at Climate One and ask each of you uh, about how much water is embedded in these particular food items. Just so we get a sense of uh, food. We talked earlier about the food water nexus. So, uh, Wendy Silver, how much water is embedded in one slice of bread? Wow. I would say a lot. Is that close enough? Uh, (laughs) As a scientist, you're supposed to be precise. Okay, uh, let's see. um, Okay, well, yeah, what kind of bread, actually? Oh, so I should say this is from the Water Science School at the U.S. Geological Survey. It didn't say what kind of bread, so we'll just generalize and say um, wheat bread. It could be different depending on what it is, sure. But ballpark, uh, how much water goes into a slice of bread? Okay, I would say, I, I'm going to just take a, a guess, um, but thinking about irrigation and processing, I would say maybe... 10 to 20 liters? Oh, you're a scientist. Speak American. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, gallons. it's 10 gallons. 10 goes gallons. Into, okay. uh, how about a pound of chicken? How much water in a pound of chicken? Okay. A pound of chicken, I would say we're getting up maybe to about 100 gallons. 500 gallons. Diana Donlin, a cup of coffee. How much water is it, does it take to make a cup of coffee? Oh, I know it's a lot. I think I've read this before. It's at least a cup. No, yeah. no. Yeah. <laughs> um, 50 gallons? Ooh, pretty good. 35 gallons in a cup of, uh, to make a cup of coffee. One egg. How much water does it take to make one egg? Well, I have chickens, and um, my little chicken, <laughs> Josephine, lays with... Oh, she probably has... Well, she shares it with her two siblings, so um, we have about a gallon. <laughs> she gets about a gallon a week, and we get about three eggs from her a week, maybe four, so... Less than a gallon, I'm going to say. But that's a pasture-raised, you know, that's my own chicken. So That's not a typical American chicken. No, no <laughs> offense against uh, your, your chicken. Uh, but typically it takes 50 gallons of water, oh, according no. to the USGS, wow. for one egg. Uh, Nicolette Nyman, uh, one hamburger. How much water to make one hamburger? Okay. Now I'm going to object. Because it totally <laughs> depends on how the cattle are raised. And, and that's the whole point of my book. Mm-hmm. Is it's radically different. First of all, are you raising them with um, on grass entirely? Are you raising them um, using irrigation on the areas where they were um, grazing? And are you um, putting chemical amendments on the ground? I mean, there's so many variables. And if it's totally grass-fed um, and it's not irrigated, they're going to get 79 to 90% of their moisture from the grass. Are you going to count that water? Um, so I refuse to answer that question. <laughs> so taking the fifth. So the, the number, these numbers are from the Pacific Institute. Peter Glick was 4,000 to 18,000 gallons of water in one hamburger. Wow. Diana Donlin? Um, that, we get our meat from Morris Grass Fed, which is in San Benito County. And again, going back to the drought, 
um, Joe Morris and his wife Julie, who've been ranching down there for 20 plus years, had to truck in water last year for their cattle. And so they had to know exactly how much water their cows were getting, and their cows got 10 gallons a day. So that's 3,650 uh, 3, gallons in a year uh, per cow. And this is grass-fed, of course, um, so that's a lot lower. It, so it can range, it can range, broad range, yeah. depending on how it's produced. Certainly, the, the industrial agriculture has a lot more bigger water use because of what goes into it. Well, and part of it is because they have to flush out the manure in the CAFOs, and so that's an average of 150 gallons a day just to flush the CAFO well, per Well, and cow. if you were to take that manure, and instead of putting it in a, a liquid manure system, but even put it in a pile, which has an high emissions, it's still going to have significantly lower emissions. And it'll be easier to take that material out and compost it and use it for, for uh, fertilizer and further offset your emissions. Nicolette Nyman. Well, also, it's really important to remember when you have grazing animals on rangelands, when they consume water, the majority of it is released as urine, and it returns right back into the grasslands and actually irrigates the grasslands. So those, whole, those I have so many objections to the way those calculations are typically done. Duly noted. New York Times recently did a big expose on, on lab meat or this, this factory in Nebraska. Um, do you have views, uh, Wendy Silver, on lab meat, sort of growing meat in test tubes? Is that something that, uh, how do you feel about that? You know, I, I think that... Is it happening at Berkeley? As far as I know, it's not happening at Berkeley, no. Uh, you know, Berkeley, most of my colleagues at Berkeley and, and, and our group as well have been really looking at w- ways in which we can better utilize landscapes um, and try to use landscapes, which, mm-hmm. which, as Nicolette mentioned, a really important issue. You know, lands- the, these, these um, managed landscapes are pulling carbon into the atmosphere for us via photosynthesis. So why would you want to take that into the laboratory where you're not going to get that carbon gain? We want to keep that grass and the greenness out there because that's what's giving us that carbon sink into the soil. And California has lost, what is it, half a million acres of grasslands in the last couple of decades. Is it possible that California could preserve its pastoral landscape and address climate change and keep, keep the beautiful scenery that people like Absolutely. in the Golden Hills and the Golden State? Uh, is that happening? And it should be, and it needs to be. I think that there's a, a big move to, to looking, you know, people, people enjoy living next to or living in green landscapes. People have shown that it's a healthier way to live. To, to have greenness around you. And, and, and so I do think that, that it's on the radar of the people in the state of California. I think it's something that we do need to pay attention to and actively vote, um, do other things that you can do, support your local producers that um, keep these landscapes in uh, greenness where they're photosynthesizing. But I think the Williamson Act, which would help people put, <clears throat> put land into that kind of thing, that's dried up partly because of the economic uh, t- uh, tight budget times. Nicolette Lyman? If I could just quickly add on, there was also research done at Berkeley. Um, I don't know if you're involved in it, Wendy, but um, looking at the importance of rangelands as pollinator habitat for wild pollinators. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know Dr. Claire Kremen was um, involved in that research, and I've talk- heard her present on it. Um, and basically, I think think she quantified, they quantified, the team quantified about 40% of the pollination of our plant crops in California now is from wild pollinators, which is more and more important because of the collapse of the bee colonies. And a lot of the, hab- the, the habitat for those wild pollinators are rangelands. And so that's the sort of benefit that people rarely consider when they talk about these issues. And you say grazing enhances biodiversity. Is that part yes, of it? and that's actually pretty well established. I mean, there's a lot of research showing that. 
We're talking about cows and uh, rangelands and climate one. I'm Greg Dalton. My other guests today are Nicolette Hahn Nyman, author of Defending Beef, Wendy Silver, professor of ecology at UC Berkeley, and Diana Donlin, Cool Foods Program Director at the Center for Food Safety. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. Uh, my name is Catherine Matthewson, and I'm a biologist and landscape architect. Um, I take classes from Dr. Elaine Ingham, who is a soil scientist. She says that in one handful of of healthy soil, there are more alive organisms than people in the world. She, you know, the way she teaches is that it's the organisms that will sequester the carbon, and there are certain kinds of organisms that will sequester better. Um, however, if the soil is dead, and it gets dead because of chemicals, and because, uh, because there's a lot, of, a lot that are sprayed from the air and, and by our government, um, then that will give off carbon. But I, I would like your comments on, on that, uh, Thank that you. idea. Uh, who'd like Diana Donlin, tell it microbes? Sure. Um, well, as I said earlier, um, the soil is alive and it is an ecosystem. And it, you know it's pretty complex to get into quickly, but um, healthy soil has aggregates, and on the aggregates there's something called glomulin. And glomulin is what the carbon adheres to um, and I think it's Dr. Ingham who says that it's an underground uh, trading scheme. So, you know, the, photo, the plant photosynthesizes and then those carbohydrates are traded with the, um, the microbiology so that the plant can, since the plant is stationary, the plant go, can't go off and get the nutrient it needs. So it gives the carbohydrates to the microorganism that can run off and get the phosphorus or the zinc or whatever the plant wants. And when you douse the plant with chemicals, then that suppresses that uh, microbiology because the plant has no incentive then to trade with the microorganisms. And so then that the microorganisms aren't alive, and so then uh, the carbon is not held as, as um, securely as it ought to be or as it can be in a natural ecosystem. And soil is getting a lot more attention these days as a, as a carbon, as a climate solution. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Hi, uh, my name is Aaron Paul. I'm representing an organization called the Factory Farming Awareness Coalition, which is based in uh, Oakland and Berkeley. Um, we advocate a plant-based diet, so full disclosure. I want to focus on how, like, in, in 2014 in the United States, approximately 9 billion animals were killed, were slaughtered for food. Um, that's not including the dairy and egg industry. And so I was wondering the practicality of this um, sort of large-scale grass grazing for those billions of animals, how they would be slaughtered, how they would be brought together. They would still require a huge input of workers, um, all those things. So just sort of talk about the practicality of that possibility. Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, it's nice as a boutique, but can can your model really scale? Yes. I mean, it's important to note that of the 9 billion animals that are killed every year, the vast majority of them are turkeys and chickens, rather, poultry. And uh, much the smallest number of all those animals are cattle. And, and it's also important to keep in mind that if you kill one steer, you produce about the same amount of meat as killing about 250 chickens. So in terms of the numbers, cattle are actually a much smaller part of the food system. But in terms of the viability of totally grass-based um, 
uh, animal production. There's um, lots of work that's been done on this. I mean, in my first book, Righteous Pork Chop, I actually cite a study that was very comprehensive and very scientific <laughs> um, done by an Austrian think tank, and they looked at the entire global food system and calculated what it would take to basically get rid of all factory farms and get animals back on pasture, including omnivorous animals like chickens and turkeys. And they found that it was entirely viable with the current land base, and they found that you could even convert to totally organic production, which admittedly takes more land, but you'd have to have some reduction, fairly modest reductions in the Western diet as far as meat and dairy. But their um, conclusion was that it was absolutely feasible, and so this is definitely an issue that is at the very least debated. It is not um, a conclusion that you can make that you cannot do away with factory farms and continue to produce meat and dairy. Let's go to our next question. Um, I was wondering, is there a website uh, available for an average citizen to just look at, uh, let's say, the uh, carbon footprint or the methane footprint for a serving of uh, beef, an eight-ounce serving of beef or eight-ounce serving of chicken, to kind of compare what the difference uh, in terms of possible ranges of carbon or methane output are and to kind of model what a typical day would be just uh, living? We have something up from Natural Resources Defense Council on, on our refrigerator at home, but Wendy Silver? You know I was going to comment on that. We're actually, um, I contributed to that uh, document that they put together, which is <coughs> called the Mediator's Guide. It's, it's the Environmental Working Group that put together a wonderful guide, and, and it was rigorously reviewed. I mean, remember that we really tried to poke holes in it and tried to really have them stick to the science. And the nice thing I, I like about that is they decided to take, uh, you know, in places where there was some controversy, they would take their, their perspective. But all of the information is all cited. All the literature is out there cited, available for anybody who wants to get on that website and look it up. Diane Donlin, uh, any consumer guys? Um, I'd like to make a point. I, I'm not a big fan of the Meat Eater's Guide, and here's the reason why. It equates animals to cars. And one of the things when I read Nicolette's book that really stood out for me was um, when you mentioned that I think it was around the 1940s, all the land-grant universities shifted from having departments of animal husbandry to departments of animal science. So we went from thinking about being, you know, shepherding animals and taking care of them to thinking of them as a commodity the way we would a widget, a car, a refrigerator, or what have you. And I think that that's partially what got us into this mess. Um, you know, if we look at history, this confinement model is not that old. It's post-World War II. There's a whole reason, bunch of reasons why the munitions factories turned into chemical factories. You know, all of a sudden we turned into pesticides, and all of a sudden we're indispensable for our agricultural process. But in the scheme of human history, that's just a teeny tiny dot. We fed ourselves. We um, had integrated crops. We had animals on the land. So, you know, this is really an anomaly. Let's go to our next question. Yes, welcome to Climate One. Great. Thanks very much. Uh, my name is John Haveman. I'm a local economist who pays a lot of attention to these issues. Um, and first, with respect to the water issue, it's estimated about 34 trillion gallons a year are spent in animal agriculture. That's an awful lot of water. Um, this is a really interesting discussion. Um, but I'm left, given that there's no scientific evidence that switching over entirely to pasture um, would lead to significant environmental benefits. Um, given, given that, um, I'm left with the fact that on 1.5 acres, you can produce about 37,000 pounds of plant-based food. 
On that same 1.5 acres, you can produce about 375 pounds uh, of meat uh, for food. A vegan diet requires about 1/18th the amount of land uh, to support uh, than does a, a meat-based diet. So I'm left wondering why merely changing the way that animal-based agriculture is done is still better than advocating for a diet where you could take one acre and use it for producing food and the other 17 acres and perhaps, as the term was used, rewild that, you know, create more green space. Wendy Silver, I've interviewed a lot of scientists from the IPCC, and a lot of them say animal-based protein is a real climate problem. The trend needs to be away from animal-based protein. So I just want to make a point that I'm not advocating. I'm just providing data. Um, And I I think that that's a really important distinction. I think that this is a choice, a personal choice, that people need to make. Um, You know, some people argue that humans are omnivores and, and, and meat is a part of their life and their diet and something that they enjoy. It's, a, it's a, also an, an ethical decision that people can make, especially if they make it consciously, which I think a lot of people don't make it consciously. Secondly, I think we've got to look at those numbers a little bit more carefully. Um, a lot of times people don't consider the full life cycle of the impact of uh, different agricultural choices. So, for example, if you look at... Um, growing uh, uh, crop agriculture and you look at the inorganic fertilizer that's used to grow that or the water that needs to be used to grow those crops year after year after year after year when land becomes depleted in nutrients and you need to add it back in because unlike cows where we're recycling some of that carbon and nutrients with with a lot of uh, crop agriculture we're not we're harvesting a lot of that off so it requires inputs the greenhouse gas costs of, of producing inorganic fertilizer is huge and a lot of life cycle assessments have not considered the greenhouse gas costs of those kinds of activities. So I think we need more information to make better informed choices. Um, I, I think that there are a whole suite of different activities, especially if you, you look globally, um, that we could do to lower our climate footprint of our diet. Uh, but I, I think you've got to look at it a little bit more holistically to, to do it in an informed way. Let's wrap up. I want to ask you briefly, we ask most guests who come here to Climate One, what you're doing in your own life to reduce your carbon footprint. You've talked about your diet. What else are you doing, Wendy Silver, to address your carbon footprint? Well, probably the biggest impact that we have at home has been to stop, <laughs> look at what's in our hand, figure out, do I, need, do I need this? Do I need to throw it out? Do I need to keep it? If I throw it out, where does it go? And then really tracing where that material's going to go down the road. And it, if you start stop and think about everything that you pick up in your hand in your house and think about what's the climate impact of this going to be, it really changes your whole lifestyle. And that's probably had the biggest impact on my family. Diana Dolan? Um, well, we have teenage boys, and they're perpetually hungry. So um, <laughs> we spend an inordinate amount of money um, buying organic fruits and vegetables. And what the, the benefit, besides the health benefits... Um, are that their friends all come over to our house because they're like, you know, that orange I had at your house was the best thing I ever tasted, or that peach, I didn't think I liked peaches till I came to your house. And so um, we just know that, you know, it, it's a way to build community, it's a way to, be, to heal the earth and put your money where your mouth is. Nicolette Nyman. 
Um, I try to bicycle as much as I possibly can, and also um, I've done a lot in the last few years to look at my food waste and try to make sure I'm not over-shopping. And when I cook a meal, I don't think, what do I want to eat tonight, and what does this recipe call for, and I better go get some of that. I look at what's in the refrigerator and in the cupboard, and then I decide what to cook. And if you take that approach, you can avoid throwing food away. I mean, my food waste has gone down by probably 90% over the last few years. And I think because of the extraordinary contribution that food waste actually makes to the climate change issue as well as other ecological problems, I think that's a really good step for everybody to take. We have to end it there. Uh, Nicolette Hahn-Nyman is author of Defending Beef. We've also been hearing from Diana Donlin, director of the Cool Foods Campaign, the Center for Food Safety, and Wendy Silver, professor of ecology at UC Berkeley. You can join the conversation at Twitter using our handle at Climate One and listen to podcasts in the iTunes store. From the search for Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our audience here in San Francisco and on the radio. Thank you all for coming. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chan. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. 